previously on Popping Collars. Or something. Especially because the makers, talk about cynical, the makers of Pokemon picked neighborhood churches because they needed a thing that wasn't going to change. Like they needed a they needed a marker. Like, yeah, right? We could put a coffee shop or a yoga studio there because in six months that'll be a different thing. So like, here's a thing that'll never move. Mm-hmm. Let's make that you know for the longevity of our game. Let's make that a thing. And the, and the reality is nobody had to walk into any any church building anywhere no. to use no. the Pokemon. The Pokemon yeah. wasn't found no. in the tabernacle. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. I, <laughs> I never went that far. Welcome to Poppin' Collars, the podcast that lives at the intersection of faith and popular culture. My name is Betsy Gonzalez, and I serve as the head chaplain at the Episcopal High School in Alexandria, Virginia. With me on our episode today is one of my co-hosts, Liz Easton. Liz, where are you and what are you up to? Hey, Betsy. I'm in Omaha, Nebraska, where I serve as the canon to the ordinary for the Diocese of Nebraska, and I'm just getting ready for Thanksgiving. Excellent. Are you going anywhere? Are you staying put? What are you up to? I'm going to be here in town with friends and um, I did all my grocery shopping today and I'm ready to go. Awesome. Ready to cook that turkey in a microwave. It's going to be great. All right. So Liz and I are joined today by our special guest, uh, the Reverend Becca Stevens, who is joining us from Nashville. Becca, how would you describe what you're up to down there in Nashville? I am just microwaving turkeys left yes. and right, girl. <laughs> hey, so I want to say to everybody that's emailing their mothers with how do you microwave a turkey <laughs> as a joke, I think every mother should email back saying, great, bring the turkey. <laughs> I'm so glad you volunteered. Yes, that is so sweet because I am so tired of making turkeys. Thank you for that. Like, fine, <laughs> microwave it. Do whatever you're going to. Just bring it. I had I wrote never back. heard of this until I was at a gathering the other night. I'm like, what are y'all talking about? And and just- everybody's doing it. My child did it from college. They emailed and said, hey, just quite, I have a quick question. We're going to do a Thanksgiving here in the dorm. Um, how long do I microwave a 10-pound turkey? And, of course, <laughs> when you write back going, oh, my God, you can't email. You can't microwave a turkey. And then they just all laugh at you because you're so ridiculous. But it's like. It's so surprising to have a son email you about the time for a turkey right. that you don't realize it's a joke. But that's not what we're here to talk about. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> what did you ask me? I asked you, how would you describe what you're up to in in Nashville? Well, I am on the road a lot. I'm not in Nashville very much. So one mm. of the things I'm really looking forward to for this week is getting to stay home but I am the president and founder of Thistle Farms, and it's really a community of women who are survivors of trafficking, addiction, prostitution. I'm an Episcopal priest, too. Mm-hmm. I'm on the road talking about how women heal and how communities can come together and how communities have been a part of why women are on the streets and in prison. Mm-hmm. That's what I do. That's what you do. Well, we're so glad that you're here with us. This is episode 96, I believe, of Popping Collars. And for today's topic, we are looking at the ever-unfolding culture in the wake of the Me Too movement that really hit popular culture in 2017 when it went viral and women everywhere uh, started telling their truth about sexual assault and misogyny 
that they've experienced. Um, this beam of light has entered into all arenas of our life, political life, religious life, work life, romantic life, home life, unearthing things that have been there all along for decades. And now we're talking about them. In fact, this is the second episode that we have done on this topic. And before we were really talking about the taking down of powerful men and seeing movies we used to love, looking at you, 1980s cinema, <laughs> fresh eyes and new disgust. But now, personally, I have felt convicted by this movement. I feel like now I have learned more and that deeper things are afoot and they've been there for a long time. So, Becca, you have been a seer in this area for a long time, and I actually just saw you down in Atlanta at the National Association of Episcopal Schools, and and you really spoke to me and kind of called out this this deeper layer, and it was a story that you told about your youngest son when he was four years old. Would you mind telling that story again for our listeners? So what happened for me is that I really wanted to, after I was ordained, I really wanted to open up a sanctuary for women where women could come and they could, you know, find the space and the time they really needed for healing. So what I was doing was I was going downtown and doing some feeding programs with women who were on the streets. And my husband was on the road. He had a deal with Columbia Records. I had a four-year-old child with me named Levi Hummin, pregnant with our second baby. And, you know, honestly, in the last 21 years I've done this work, I haven't met a woman coming off the streets who hasn't been raped, who hasn't known very, very, very deep sexual violence. And so I knew, I think I was feeling that even when I was there. So the whole thing kind of made me a little nervous just to do feeding for women and know they were in that dangerous kind of bad situation still when you were done with the feeding. And where this feeding program was, it was in front of the oldest strip club in Nashville called the Classic Cat, right on the corner of Broadway and 8th Avenue. And so I'd parked out in front of it. And when I went to go get in the car, um, I was trying to get my four-year-old to get in the car seat. That was the whole thing. And my mind was elsewhere thinking about just the women on the streets who I'd met. And um, my son was doing this, like, that arched back that kids do, and they won't let you get them in the car seat. And they're really strong, and you're, like, trying to push them in. And I realized his head's all the way back because he's looking up at the sign in front of the classic cat. And it's like a 10-foot sign, billboard, of a woman dressed in just a memory of a cat suit with the ears and the tails and the whole bit. And she's just smiling to beat the band. And my son said, Mama, why is that lady smiling? Mm-hmm. And when he said it, it kind of broke my heart because I thought, you know, someday my child's not going to ask that question. It's going to kind of fade into the landscape of how we treat women where you can sell them for less than a cat and expect them to smile the whole time. Mm-hmm. And so that was the day I said, I'm doing it. I want my son to know what it means to love women and really respect women and be advocates for women. I want him to know his mama was about something bigger than this, that I don't think this is okay. You know, and truthfully, if you drove, if you flew into Nashville, Tennessee today, and you drove downtown, you would see the sign for the world's largest adult bookstore. You would see a sign for another strip club where they don't even have the woman's head. It's just her crotch and legs. And we don't have to see that and think, eh, it's another sign. We can go, there's a person behind that, and they're probably pretty broken. Mm-hmm. I I sometimes think about the sexual culture that young women are coming of age in. And it feels like in my lifetime, there was a shift to this idea that women ought to be able to have sex like men. 
I don't know exactly what that means, but it occurs to me sometimes when I think about the prevalence of pornography, we've bent to the will of men's sexual desires and called it empowerment sometimes. You know, and the idea that when we are participating in pornography, we're participating in human trafficking. Mm -hmm. Same dudes that stand up and say, you know, I'm against human trafficking are downloading images. And many of the women that I've worked with, that was part of it. The, Mm -hmm. the, Picture taking and video sharing and all that is a huge part of it, you know, and it's when you're younger, you're videoed. And then when you're older, you're left in the alley. Women become commodities for real, for real. And when you're a commodity, it's not mutuality. Mm -hmm. And I'm looking for mutuality in relationships. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And I think that we like to think that that's not the case, that somehow if we're, if our politics are correct or, you know, I feel like we have a very reductive understanding of men's sexuality that completely limits their capacity for intimate relationships and love. And we just sort of say, oh, this is the way it's always been. This is the way that men always are, whatever, whatever. I get all, you know, you know this, y'all both know this as priests, that you're too Christian or not Christian enough for everybody. And everybody right. thinks, you know, because you're doing this work, either you're a prude or you're a slut or you're something. And it's like, it's none of those things. And with the work of human sex trafficking, you also get, you know, you can't say the word prostitution. You can't say the word sex worker. You can't do this. And we get all caught up in the language. And it's like, I don't care. It's the same issues. If you mm-hmm. look at the women who have been trafficked, who have participated in sex industry, it's linked to the drug industry. And so I keep thinking the language becomes a trap because we get so scared we're going to say the wrong thing or we're going to use the wrong language. And it limits us instead of saying like we can put any ribbon on the same old package, mm-hmm. you know, which is we do, we want women to have freedom and that's economic freedom, sexual freedom, spiritual freedom, just freedom. Yeah. We had a woman come and speak to our students. I want to say she was from the Kinsey Institute or has worked there. And, uh, and she came and shared some of the results that she had from sex surveys with like older high school students through college students and into young adults. And you were talking about the influence of pornography and the number of females who took the survey who had been frightened by sex with their partner because they slapped them, Mm -hmm. them, called them bitch whore, used language like that, or tried to choke them because they thought that it would be something that they would like because that's what that sexual violence prevalent in pornography. Right. That's what they've been seeing since basically they were little boys. So this is, I thought she would like it because we also don't know how to talk and communicate and ask the questions or, or say, I want this or I don't want this. And, and so then it just happens in the midst of, of the moment. So many of the people, boys and girls who took the survey, what they really want, and they're actually embarrassed by it is that they want a loving relationship they want a boyfriend and a girlfriend and it's not that they want to just have all this you know kind of casual relationships and hookup culture that so many of them are embarrassed because they desperately want to be in a loving relationship and it was a powerful moment to sit with a group of freshmen through high school students because you're trying to walk that line mm-hmm. uh, i'm not going out there and telling you to have have sex you know i'm telling you that when it is appropriate for that to be happening for you I want you to have a happy and healthy sex life and one that feels good to you, that you feel heard in, 
all of that. And I don't know whether anybody, I mean, there are definitely huge number of kids in that room. You've met our kids, Becca, who I'm sure nobody has said that to, mm-hmm. you know, cause we get so scared. We're so scared for them, you know, you know, wait, 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 wait. Well, I think it's good to have it in those conversations in schools. I know as a mom, it's like, you can't, you almost can't have some of those conversations with your sons, at least you can try, but it comes across pretty judgy. No matter what you say, that's what I've learned. I have three sons and we try, you know, you try and you try as a mom to, you know, instill the best ideals about love that you can. And you want to do it where you're being supportive, but I just want to do a shout out to all your listeners to say those conversations are awkward. No matter how much training you have with your own kids. And so I'm grateful when people have a different setting to have those conversations. And that's a help to parents. Well, and you don't want to shame them, you know, knowing that they've already experienced all kinds of, you know, media and, you know, even personal experience that are sexual. You don't want to shame them, but like how to reorient it. I went to a Catholic high school where we like sex ed was very, um, complicated (laughs) but it was a Jesuit high school so it was really progressive and I remember we had a speaker come in and she wasn't allowed to talk about the mechanics of sex she wasn't allowed to talk about contraception certainly but I remember her I wish I knew who she was because she had this very subversive what she ended up talking about was good sex this is what good sex looks like and I remember her saying things that like blew my mind like good sex you can laugh about and, you know, in that yeah. super serious, like anxious, I w- that blew my mind. Like, I can't imagine laughing about like, this doesn't feel funny at all. And I told my mom when I got home and she was like, yeah, that's pretty much right on. Like, you, that's exactly right. You should be able to be light about this. As we've watched over the past couple of years, how this has kind of grown and blossomed. And I think after going through the the Kavanaugh hearings and, and kind of and being up here in the D.C. area at a prep school, and some of that feeling, the pushback against this feeling that actually being honest and talking about this is somehow changing the rules midship on me, mid mid course. Like, what do you mean X isn't okay and Y isn't okay? And that was a long time ago, so it doesn't matter. And you know, all those those the elements of anger that are really coming and pushing back against having honest conversations about the systems in our culture and experiences that people are having to be that, to be greeted with such an angry push. You know, I'm a Gen Xer and we're, we're definitely a group of folks who we were just playing by the rules that everybody else was playing by, but now we're saying, you know what, that wasn't okay. Mm -hmm. But don't you think, and Becca, you, I think have like the real insight through your work into this dynamic. But I think that a lot of that anger was an expression of shame. And that's what makes it like that was able to bring me to a place of compassion. I think that everyone, for the most part, lots of people, let's say, have done things that they knew were not right, or that they felt were not right. And with Kavanaugh, that was related both to sex and alcohol abuse. Mm -hmm. And so bringing this into the light of day, I think just like rose up all of this shame and people act out in incredible ways. You know, in my life and in many of the women's lives that I serve through the community at Thistle Farms, it's like, there's not one story. I mean, once there's a story, there's usually five more that follow it. Mm-hmm. When you Once you get marked in that way, I don't know what it is, but you know, if you're, you have some dysfunction in your family, you're poor, you're 
vulnerable. It's like there's a million of those stories. What was amazing about the Kavanaugh trial, for me, it was very um, angst-ridden. But for most of the women, they didn't even pay attention to it. She's like, that's the way it's been. That's the way. It, well, who was expecting anything different? He was going to get confirmed. It was all going to happen. That's just the way life is. But there was a lot of just like, eh, that's not that big a deal, which is almost heartbreaking, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let me sit over here with my privilege and think there's no way that this could ever go through. Right. Mm-hmm. And then now, now this is the way the world has been working for a really long time. And that that was what struck so me. So in other words, we're talking about women who the police officer sexually assaulted them, the guard sexually assaulted them, the judge sexually assaulted them. It's just many, many of the women. And some of my experience that that's how it went down when you were young. Mm-hmm. Well, and that is, I think, the infuriating part about the Me Too movement and what we, I will be interested to see where it goes from here. And we can maybe all speculate about that too. But like it, it blows my mind that the day that women started writing Me Too on Facebook and social media, that men's responses were, I had no idea. That just enrages me because in every case, when either you experience sexual assault or sexual discrimination or, you know, whatever it is. Harassment, what have you. Harassment. And, you know, there are always men around <laughs> when, when something like that happens. So it just blew my mind that they were surprised. <laughs> and so I can imagine that, you know, talk about levels of privilege, Becca, that the women that you're working with probably felt the same level of like, you've got to be kidding me about right. this Kavanaugh thing, you white woman. I tried to downplay this a lot with the women, but that some of the conversation was like, that's, that's almost not even, that doesn't even register sexual assault in their book of sexual violence. That experience was lucky because you got out. Right. And then that's crazy. But what I was going to say is that that's part of the reason I think everybody has to find really healing, accepting, beautiful communities is because it will drive you crazy. If you're just, trolling on social media or, you know, learning to swipe left for your news, it can get really angst ridden and depressing pretty quickly. I think I would die if I thought that was the only news in the world. Mm -hmm. And so what I've tried to be about is saying like, really the movement, the Me Too movement is not a hashtag on social media. Mm -hmm. That's interesting, but that is not what a movement is. If you look at the history culturally about what movements are, I mean, it requires a lot more of it of us than just hashtagging. It's really, to me, you know, finding communities that are good news communities that are lifting up women and celebrating women and worrying about their economic independence and then helping make that news. You know, Mm -hmm. I keep thinking like along, you know, there's a whole life after the Me Too movement, Mm -hmm. you know, and that life after Me Too has to be where we are supporting and holding up women in new ways, not just sympathizing with them, but really, like, I hate the word empower. I'm going to say love, loving women. And there's a lot of ways to do it. Like with, with your kids, Betsy, in in the high school, like saying, I want to make sure they have every opportunity and really lift them up and saying, how, you know, how can I listen? How can I be there for them? And then in the chapels, bringing that up and in the business spaces. I mean, that's why we got into the marketplace at Thistle Farms. That's why we have 27 global partners now it's like we gotta we have to make a stand for women who really don't have a fair shake which keeps them subject to the violence and vulnerability of poverty 
Mm-hmm. You know, as long as they're going to be poor, that's going to be part of their story. You know, there's that old adage about give a woman a fish, feed, eats for a day, teach her how to fish, feed her for a lifetime. It's like, good God, women have been fishing a long time. We know how to fish. <laughs> you know, that's not that big a deal. Fishing is not that hard. Well, the problem is, is that we, and I definitely don't need a man teaching me how to fish. You know, that would drive me crazy, especially as a survivor myself. That, that kind of stuff drives me crazy. What what I've realized is that women don't have really great fishing poles. They don't have access to the lake where the fish are. They don't have the distribution system to get the fish to the markets. And that's when women need to come together in the movement to make sure that stuff is happening. Mm-hmm. To say, I recognize your ability to fish. Now, let's get you to the marketplace so you can sell your fish and feed your children. We watched at, you know, in different ways at General Convention this summer you know, when you talk about becoming a part of communities that love and lift people, mm. you know, we would, we would all like to be a church where that's happening everywhere all the time. And we know that just as any institution, the church has also been a place where perpetrators of this have happened. I mean, that's, that's some of, it's your story, Becca. It's, it's a place where those things happen. When we were watching the, the service that the bishops put together, where they had had survivors and stories and when they would, and they responded to all of them with letters and they asked if they could read some of them at the service, the one Bishop would go up and then two additional bishops would stand with them. Almost like the, the story is not just one person's story. It's also the people here standing with me's story. We're kind of yoked. And then it's everybody's story. And knowing that some of the people, men and women who wrote those stories were in the room, Mm-hmm. They've been invited to come and starting to try to be a place where we can be honest about our own shortcomings as an institution that's trying to hold up love but falls short. It's another level that I have to keep in mind in doing my ministry mm-hmm. that I'm not the only experience of church that people have, right? Or of religion that people have. I have to I have to own some of that too, as a as someone who works inside that institution. I agree with that. And I think what I hear when I hear it, too, is like, I think it's important to hear from the pulpit, the stories, too. You know, I mean, Hollywood is just getting a taste of what um, the church has known for a long time, mm-hmm. which is when we think that we are above the normal rules, abuse isn't just likely to happen. It will happen. <laughs> I mean, right. you know, it's an abuse of power. I've been having similar conversations with colleagues around helping students who have, you know, either Jewish religious or cultural identity in the face of things that are happening in the world. But we're so worried about doing the right thing. And will they come? And I don't know. And should it be dinner? Should it be, you know, <laughs> if they don't do anything that we, yeah. that we just kind of we keep we keep we've had the conversation, but nothing ever goes anywhere. Oh. You know, and so is that attempt to, you know, and can we do that in our communities? Could we do that as a diocese? Is that too small? Well, I keep saying that, that I agree with you. And I'm like, why can't when people are having these conversations for me, it's like drink tea grown by survivors in the midst of Mexico, the moringa tea that we have. When you're having these conversations, you know, use the roller oils, the healing oils made by women who survived in Rwanda, like make some action that's even part of the conversations that are really little. And it kind of brings the whole spirit and it makes you feel like you're already doing something. One of the things I love about the cafe at Thistle Farms in Nashville, Tennessee is like we've had more than 50,000 
visitors this first year that since we reopened it. We redid it and reopened it. And I think people come and we get like Thelma and Louise visits, by the way, people making road trips to come have a cup of coffee down there. It feels like you are supporting survivors. It feels like you are walking into part of the solution and you're also being fed mm-hmm. I mean, because you don't want your work to feel like, oh my gosh, this is a pain and I hate it and it's embarrassing and it's depressing. Anybody can go eat a sandwich, right. you know, and drink a cup of tea. And so people come and it's this beautifully powerful way of doing it. I just saw a picture. It was just posted like two or three days ago, I think. It was a couple who got did their wedding at Thistle Farms. Oh. And they're standing in front of the Love Heels big um, outdoor mural in their wedding dress and blue jeans and tennis shoes. They It was really this beautiful young couple. It was like, who would have imagined that that's where people want to get married? Mm-hmm. You know, that people do, like, what I love, what makes me weepy is how many people do want to help and how kind people have been to us. I mean, there is all this other stuff going on. But there are lots of communities where people can go to to find some space and healing folks. And I feel like that was the most important thing for me is to think about, like, what is a really practical, relevant, easy way for people to get involved in a movement. just going to say quickly time for a plug for um for thistle farms because it's a great place to do your holiday shopping yes get it yeah what can you tell us what your website is becca yeah get all your stuff at thistlefarms.org follow me on instagram becca stevens follow me come see what the movement's about we're trying to just really grow it and then get some new energy going in the new year and also, if people are coming through Nashville, you know, we have millions and millions of visitors a year. Come see us at Thistle Farms. Drive by. Yeah, we're super excited. We've got a group of kids who are going to be coming down for spring break. Yay! Spend some time down there, St. Augs, and over at the Episcopal School in Nashville and at Thistle Farms. So, we're, we're so gonna... you guys, um, next time we do the podcast, y'all are going to do it from Nashville. We'll do it at the cafe. I love Nashville. Love. I'm a huge country music fan, Becca. So I celebrated our 30th birthday in Nashville. You did? There you go. I did with two of my girlfriends, and it was a blast. So time has come for our staff pick. Liz, you have something you would like to recommend? What yeah, do I do. Um, I have a Netflix TV show that I think is two seasons, and it's called Atypical. Oh, never Does anyone watch that? It's really interesting kind of family dramedy about um, a family with two teenage kids, one of whom um, has autism. He's on the autism spectrum and is getting close to graduating from high school. And he sort of makes a comment to his therapist on an off comment, like, oh, I'll never have a girlfriend. And his therapist is like, wait a minute, like people on the autism spectrum definitely date and have relationships. If you want to have a girlfriend, let's start working on that. So using like behavioral therapy starts coaching him about how to date and it's just super charming. It's really fun. I think that they do a great job of showing how folks living with autism 
contribute to their communities in really beautiful ways. And it's the story of this family and of this guy. And it's really funny and charming and a little off color. And they take, I think that the actor who plays the main character is um, what they would say neurotypical. But there are lots of actors who are portraying folks with autism who also have autism spectrum disorders. So a lot of the actors themselves um, have autism. It's just really, I've never seen anything like it on TV and it's great. It's, it's really. Now, is this something that if our listeners find themselves in a multi-generational holiday situation, uh can they watch it with their like parents? Like how young do you think this show goes? Like, I think I would be comfortable watching it with my parents when I'm 35. So I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Depends on what conversations you've had. Yeah. I mean, it might not be as open to say HGTV, which is where we always end up when we're yeah. all. <laughs> it might be the thing that you watch when you go to bed early with your laptop and like oh, sit in God. your room quietly and watch a TV show by yourself. I'm definitely getting it. I'm getting it and I'm watching it um, on my next trip because I oh, always good. love watching Netflix on the yeah. travel. Oh, so yeah, it's really good. sweet. All right. Very cool. All right. Well, thank you, Liz. For offering that up. And and thank you to both Liz and Becca for being on the show today. This was really a nice conversation. You can find our little podcast wherever your podcast needs are met. iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher. Uh, we're also on Episcopal Cafe, home of all your Episcopal news. We love Episcopal Cafe and we know that you will too. So when you when you find us there, please, uh, you know, subscribe. Please give us some ratings. It always helps more people um, get involved in, in this little little thing that we have going on. And so we hope everybody has a wonderful holiday season out there and uh, keep those collars popped. <laughs>